So it was a year ago this month that I bought my first house. I was tired of renting, I was in a good place, and I could purchase a home. So I was really excited, I spent a lot of time, I was very patient in finding just the right house, the place that was perfectly located um, near my family as well as in proximity to the church. And so it's a, it's a very cute uh, brick ranch home three bed bedrooms, two baths, perfect size for me with a large backyard for my dogs to run around in. And so I moved in, I painted just about every room in the house, I decorated, I hosted a housewarming party, and I settled into my new home. What a great feeling. However, it wasn't long after I moved in that I noticed I wasn't the only one who moved into my house. But I had some unwanted visitors of the rodent kind. And so they thought that my dog's food was a great source of food for them, and so they started nibbling away. And then when they got thirsty, they thought the PVC pipe underneath my crawl space was a great source of water. So they chewed through a hole in the pipe, which of course I didn't notice it until I received a very large water bill um, from the city. And I got that repaired, and they were, I guess, still thirsty, still needing water. They chewed a hole in the drain of my dishwasher. And so I had to get that repaired. Um, so needless to say, I tried to trap these critters and uh, to no avail, I had to call the exterminator. And the exterminator came out and he sealed up my home and he trapped all these rodents. And um, I am, yes, rodent free, but he also sent me a rather large invoice. So it was not long after that that I had another issue with my home. I had a plumbing problem. And so my sewer was backed up. This resulted in men coming out to my house and staying till nine o'clock at night, digging a four foot hole in my front yard uh, to repair the line. Again, another large expense. So had I known, I mean, the joys of home ownership, <laughs> um, I might have reconsidered my purchase. I might have rethought what I was getting myself into, right? But you don't know what you don't know. And so I entered into this purchase. In our gospel story today, Jesus is helping his followers reconsider or to rethink their devotion and their commitment to him. You see, Luke tells us that there's a crowd traveling along with Jesus on this road, and he's traveling to Jerusalem. So we can imagine that this crowd is very excited, very enthusiastic, because they're, they're going with this revolutionary leader to Jerusalem, and this leader is going to free them from political and social oppression of Rome. So there's lots of excitement. And I think this scene, I like to picture it as somewhat of a parade. Everybody loves a parade. I like a parade, especially one that you can join in on and go along with. But Jesus turns to them, he stops, he turns, and he says to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. All right, wait a minute. Um, Jesus told them to hate. How many of you are thinking that this is not the Jesus I learned about in Sunday school? Right? What in the world is happening? As I read this passage this week, I, was, um, I felt this tension, this, maybe even a contradiction. I mean, God is love, is he not? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Hate isn't even a word that Christians ought to use. I mean, I wasn't 
I, taught, I couldn't say the word hate in my household. I remember sitting at the supper table and the vegetables were being passed around and my mom dishes me out a big spoonful of asparagus. I turned to her and I'm like, Mom, I hate asparagus. No offense to anybody who likes asparagus. I said, I hate asparagus. And my mom turned to me and she goes, uh-uh, no, we don't say that word. I'm like, what word, asparagus? <laughs> okay. She said, no, we don't use the word hate. Uh, not even for items, especially not for people. So when we talk about love, we talk about God. It's, they're synonymous. And now Jesus in this scripture is telling us to hate someone, not just anyone, but our family members. Well, as usual, context matters, right? It's dangerous to build a theology on just one story or on just one verse in scripture. So what is Jesus saying? Well, let me suggest that he's, Jesus is speaking a hyperbole, all right? He's using such strong language to paint a picture of contrast. We know this to be true because we look at all of Scripture, we look at the whole Bible, and the Bible doesn't call us to hate anyone. The Ten Commandments, we read in Exodus 20, God commands, honor your father and your mother. Paul in Ephesians tells husbands to love your wives as you do your own bodies. And then in Colossians, he exhorts fathers to not provoke your children. So we see that clearly we're not to hate anyone, but what is Jesus saying when he says, if you don't hate? And then he lists on just about everybody in your family group. And in case you're not close with your family, you should hate yourself as well. So what does he mean? Again, I. I believe he's making a statement of primary affection, of contrast. It's who is most loved in your life? Who is most valued? Who is, most, what, who is the most important person in your life? And if the time comes, and it might come, and it, it does come for some, when they are forced to choose, the winner in that choice must be Jesus. He must be first and foremost. So notice again in the scripture that Jesus is speaking to the crowd, to those that had jumped on this bandwagon heading towards Jerusalem. In biblical times, family was much more than just familiar ties. It was their livelihood, it was their security, it was their social status, it was their wealth, it was the future, their future. So now listen, there's a few hundred people who had heard that Jesus was passing out lunch and healing people and they were very interested in what they would receive if they kept following him along this journey. Jesus turns to them. Um, again, they need to know. They need to know what they're getting themselves into, right? They, it's almost as Jesus saying, buyer beware. Watch out. This is what's coming. But they're not able to go all the way with him unless they do the next thing he says. And the next thing he tells them is, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So when we think of the cross, we think of it as a symbol of our faith, right? We wear it on chains around our necks and we decorate our homes with uh, crosses. But to the crowd that would have heard this, they would have imagined a shameful criminal walking along a dusty road carrying his cross to his death. So the cross is a symbol of terror. It's an instrument of torture. 
So we would hear this, and we might hear, take up your electric chair. Take up your gas chamber. Take up your lynching tree and follow me. But Jesus knew that the cross was the way to the kingdom of God. That his death on the tree was what would be our way to salvation. It was an act of his self-giving love. And so for us to take up the cross is to be willing to sacrifice our lives for the good of others, to bring about life and reconciliation to those around us. Jesus is saying then that anyone not willing to give themselves and their possessions for the kingdom of God cannot, or rather is not able, to be filled with God's love and his grace. So this passage isn't a bludgeon, it's an invitation, right? It's an invitation to this life in the kingdom of God, this kingdom of God that's characterized by self-sacrifice. It's characterized, though, by peace and by forgiveness and justice and hope. Now, I know what you're thinking. All right, Sarah, but, but God said, Jesus said, hate my children, right? My spouse. What is that about? Here we find a universal spiritual principle. It all starts with acknowledging that we're idolaters, right? That we idolaterize things, even good things. Sometimes it's possessions, sometimes it's other things, and sometimes it's our family, right? We worship our families, um, I heard of a family recently who spent a lot of time and energy and effort to um, create the perfect birthday celebration for their three-year-old. I mean, they went all out and, you know, the wife was on Pinterest finding just the right de decorations uh, for this birthday celebration. But would the three-year-old even remember it in the coming days? Probably not. It was all so that the parents could be seen as having given their child the perfect childhood. So I want to suggest that we stop sacrificing ourselves on the altar of providing our children with the perfect childhood, or perhaps sacrifice ourselves on the altar of providing the picture of the perfect family on Facebook, and we release those things to God. See, we worship relationships and possessions because they provide us with safety and security they provide us with social status. They, provide us, they help us to fit in with cultural expectations. But as people of faith, Jesus calls us to rethink what is first in our lives. And the beauty of this is that once we place God first in our lives, we then see those things that we once idolatrized through a new lens. We see them through the lens of the cross, a cross-shaped lens, and we enter into a new relationship with them. We have a proper love for them. So let me repeat this principle. First, we're all people given to idolatry, but that's where God meets us. God meets us as people who worship relationships and possessions, and he says, come. Come, be followers of me. And so we break our strong attachments to these idols because they don't give us, in the end, they don't give us safety and security and value that we discover in God. 
So for example, that nice, big, manicured lawn that we um, spend a lot of money at landscaping, then we stick a sign in it that says, keep off, or perhaps that nice, large sofa that we bring into our home and then we cover it in plastic, or uh, that nice new car that we um, purchase and then we park way far away from all the other cars in the back of the lot so that it doesn't get dented by any other car doors. Um, as followers of Jesus, those possessions aren't bad, don't hear me say that, but we bring them to God and, we help, and he helps us put them in their proper place, and they are then used for the good of others. That pristine yard then gets used to invite neighbors over for a gathering, or perhaps some of it gets set aside to grow produce that's then given to the local food shelter. And that nice new sofa then is offered to a friend who needs shelter when they're displaced from their home. Or that, and that car, that nice new car, well, it's helpful in picking people up who can't otherwise come to church, or perhaps it's used to deliver meals to people in need. So Jesus turns to the crowd, and he tells these two stories of counting the cost. Before you begin, you must count the cost. Let's be clear, you're getting yourself into something. But is it really a cost, or is it a choice? Because, see, a cost is what you give up, and a choice is something you make in order to gain something. It's, it's a choice, perhaps even, between two really good things. But what is best? In every sphere of life, we are called upon to make choices and to count the cost. That promotion at work costs us. Possessions cost us. The perfect family cost us. Relationships cost us. Just think of that young couple who stands at the altar ready to say, I do. And we hope and we pray that somebody has come alongside them. Somebody has come along and counseled them and given them wise words of the sacrifice that they are making, that they are entering into. But to them, it's a choice. It's a choice they're making to live a life of commitment and of love and devotion. And they're gaining so much in this sacrifice. So choosing the cross is actually choosing a life of love and of devotion to God. It's choosing to sacrifice yourself for both your friends and your enemies. It's choosing to do justice and righteousness right here, right now. To be committed to the way of a life that is characteristic by the kingdom of God. But it all starts here. It starts by counting the cost and by making the choice to keep first things first.